So tonight, we have the harmless discussion of dating. You're not allowed, Mike. You're not allowed to do that anymore. So here's what's neat. You know, I think that there are weeks that maybe ring more true to a season that we're in or maybe something that we need correction on. And then there are weeks that we might think, um, you know what, I'm good here. I know what I need to know. And that's that. And um, I, I think that the topic of dating is not only for our singles tonight or those who are in a dating relationship. I think it's absolutely crucial for our young married couples to be reminded of what that looks like and uh, to be reminded of God's grace and how we messed it up. And it is a great reminder for us to be examples and to pour our lives into others who are going through this season. Um, Anybody out of the season of dating and you remember how treacherous and terrible it was? Abigail, put your hand down. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and then for you, those of you who have been married for a long time, maybe have kids, it's important for you um, because your kids may be in the midst of dating. And then there are those of you who your kids have since come and gone and grown and um, this is where you can be spiritual fathers and mothers to those in our church who desperately need that. And you can be an example and an encouragement. So I hope that nobody tunes out tonight and that we can look at a biblical worldview on dating or courting. And I hope for those of you who are single and longing to be with someone that this can be an encouragement, an exhortation for you. Um, I was reading a a book by R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, on how can I know God's will for my life. It's just a little small, uh, like a hundred page book. And actually the last chapter in this book is on marriage. And he actually gave the example of when he was counseling, when he was still a pastor and he would counsel many people, there was a young lady who came uh, to him and basically was pretty unhappy in her singleness, longed to be with somebody, And felt like she was just waiting around for God to plop somebody in her life. And R.C. said to her, you know, it's okay for you to pursue a godly man. And and she had never been told that that was an okay thing to do. Uh, But you, I think that women maybe struggle with this more or at least are more vocal about wanting to not be single or in that season of singleness. And what I would say is... It is okay for you to pursue a godly man or to express that interest in a biblical, Christ-centered way. And I think especially for our women or especially for our men as well, honestly, um, we have this perception of we have to woo people. We have to win them a certain way. We have to do a certain thing to get things to get attention or to be seen. And um, that's all foolishness. And we'll talk about those types of things tonight. So let's get started. We, we continue our topic this evening in the bubble of marriage, okay, by dis- discussing a biblical worldview on dating or, or courting, whichever term you prefer, neither is biblical. So you pick. For all of you courtship people, that's not actually biblical uh, either. We're going to talk about that this evening. The question of what does culture say, uh, I think will be addressed here and there in the context of our discussion of what does the Bible say and how should we live. So we're going to kind of move past that question in the beginning because we're going to deal with that throughout the evening. I want to start by addressing the fact um, that 
the Bible doesn't really give us a roadmap or outline for dating or courting. You won't find uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 17 where it outlines how you are to pursue people with the mind of Christ and woo them and make them fall in love with you and how you know when it's the right one. And You're not going to find that uh, in Scripture. We do have examples in Scripture of how marriages came to be, okay? Uh, so it kind of assumes the process of what that looked like leading up to it. I, I think of Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Isaac and Rebekah. I think of Jacob and Leah and, then, and, and Rachel. I think of Boaz and Ruth or Joseph and Mary. But when you look at these um, marriages or even how they came to be, they're descriptive and, and used specifically for purposes, and they're not necessarily prescriptive. So many of these marriages were arranged um, or supernatural. And when I say that, I, I say supernatural because God sovereignly worked in the lives of these people to accomplish part of his redemptive plan. And even, I know that, Gannon, that you like this, the gene- genealogy leading to Christ. So there were specific things that needed to take place for people to come together in order to accomplish God's plan. Now, this does not mean that the Bible is quiet about dating or courting. It is certainly not. Um, but I do think that most people have the tendency to look at the Bible in the wrong way to answer questions they have about dating. I think we do this with uh, things beyond just dating, right? But um, sometimes we approach the Bible with a box where we want the Bible to fill that box or this void or these answers. And that's not necessarily how the Bible works. There are occasions where God supernaturally by his spirit works in those kind of ways and he brings you to a passage and it's a timely word and I praise God for that. But really we need to remember that when we go to God's word, what we're doing is we're trying to conform our entire life to his word. So when we spend time in the word of God, we we shouldn't go with the main priority of trying to get an answer for some compartment of our life, but rather that the word of God would expose our entire life, that it would lead us to humility, to see God greater in his glory and who he is, and then we respond accordingly. And the reality is, is that when you live in that kind of way, keeping in step with the spirit, opening up the word of God, and letting the word of God dictate your life, rather than your life dictating the word of God into your life, what happens is you'll find the answers that you're seeking Answer the questions you're seeking answers for, you will find. The Spirit will lead you as you are meditating on the law of God day and night. With dating, today, there's a great deal of mysticism. Right? There's a great deal of mysticism found in today's view of dating. What I mean by that is that, you know, you think about how we've been completely overwhelmed with love stories or movies or books, shows expectations of what the perfect guy looks like. What is the, you know, Gannon, you're close. Or Gavin. I always, why, every time he comes home. uh, Yeah, he he is close too. That's a good good job, fiance. Or what the perfect girl looks like, right? Kirsten, you got a way to go. Uh, Or what the, I'm just kidding. Or what the perfect relationship looks like. And no, Rudy and Beth do not have the perfect relationship. It seems that in many relationships, even, if you've noticed, it seems... Did you say amen, Beth? Was that you, Rudy? All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. it, have you noticed, too, that um, if you just kind of watch those who are dating or courting, have you, have you noticed how competitive it is? 
Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, we have to have a cuter picture than them. They just took a picture with a barn door and a and and the 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 you know the light shining perfectly and there was a cat walk in the background. We have to have two cats walking in the background. And you know they had it at a perfect time during sunrise. We have to have sunrise and sunset. Right? This is this is the way it's going to be. They're, it's so competitive. We I want us to be cuter than them. I want us to be happier than them. I want people to look at our story. When we tell our story, I want it to be even more romantic than all the movies you've seen. Our proposal has to be better than any other proposal. And all this energy goes into making your relationship or your dating, your your courtship, have the appearance of being greater than what the world says is an awesome relationship. What happens is because... So much work goes into the face value of the relationships. The relationships themselves tend to be unbelievably shallow and Christless, godless. When I think about the word of God and culture and how we make decisions about our relationship, I would say, and I mentioned this to our our leaders earlier, when I look at all the topics that we've covered and all the topics that we will cover I think, in my opinion, this is one of the most um, crucial topics because it's one of the topics that is the most difficult to see the difference between a worldly relationship and a godly relationship. And I mean that from the dating standpoint. It's almost impossible to be able to look at a couple and the entire aspect of what that relationship looks like and is made up of, and be able to say, oh, this is a biblical relationship, and this is a culture relationship. It's sometimes totally uh, indistinguishable. I think um, of our expectations in relationships because of culture. I think of our justifications of what we would probably have convictions about that we bypass because of culture. I even think that parents have gotten softer because they're pressured by culture or other parents or even their own kids. It's also astonishing to me because when you hear stories of families who are very strict in courting or they put all kinds of boundaries or house visits or whatever you may uh, think, you know, a courting bench, all the likes like that. It's amazing how we are quick to mock them or tell them that they're prude or legalistic or way out of bounds as if it's some great sin or obnoxious that a family would take incredibly seriously the soul of their son or daughter and who they'll spend the rest of their life with and who they will not allow them to be in positions where they could give parts of themselves away that should not be given away, at least, if, if to that person, at least not at that season of life. I, I'm really astonished, and, and I have to throw myself into this hoop too because I found myself to be a person that judges sometimes the strictness of parents. I definitely did in my dating years, and the reason I did so is because I wanted to justify the own boundaries that I pushed, right? So it's easy for me to make fun of and say, oh, that's crazy. That's too religious. The Bible doesn't say that. Nowhere do you see where it's too far is too far. These people are nuts. And I did that because in my own heart, as a dude who wants to be affirmed and loved by a woman and has all those emotions and feelings, I want to push the boundary. And then I want to push it a little more. 
And then I want to push it a little more. I just know the wickedness in my own heart. So I think it is really pathetic and foolish when I think about myself in those days to think of how I would judge or condemn others who took it a lot more seriously than I did. And here I find myself at the age of 30. And the biggest regrets in my life have to do with relationships with women. And dating relationships specifically. Specifically in high school and in college. In my first few years here. Some of my biggest regrets. I wish somebody would go back and just smack Dave Aubrey across the face. Tell him he's not as good as he thinks he is. He's not as handsome as he thinks he is. He's not as talented as he thinks he is. He's not God's greatest gift to every mother who has a daughter. It's just astonishing as I look at the wickedness and the corruption in my own heart and how it was so self-centered, but even more so. And I had a godly father, right? But I never really had somebody just sit in my life and get in my face and say, here is where you are totally living like the devil. Nobody loved me enough, I don't feel like, to really be that bold. Now listen, there are a lot of people who love me enough to warn me, to caution me, to teach me and sway me uh, but apparently I needed more and probably some of you in this room need a lot more than that you know the Bible tells us in Jeremiah seventeen nine that our hearts are deceitful think about this in the context of dating and choosing who you'll spend the rest of your life with or even spend a season of your life with Proverbs thirty one thirty says that charm and beauty are seductive Proverbs fourteen twelve. you ready for this Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to men, but its end is the way of death. Scripture is not mystical about how we find love. And love can only truly be known in a biblical way when you know the Father when you know Christ, when you've been adopted into the beloved, when his love has been lavished upon you. The Bible challenges us to be diligent in our pursuit of marriage, and it challenges us to seek wisdom. And so there's three things that I'll I'll mention over and over. I don't have three points. I have a lot more points than that. But there are three things that I'll say throughout the entire evening that I think of When it comes to a biblical worldview of dating, that things that are required for you if you're in that season or you're counseling people in that season to speak and to know. And that is, to have a biblical worldview of dating or courting, you need to die to yourself. You've got to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow Christ. And that's the second part. Pursue Christ. You need to deny yourself. You don't know what's best. Your heart is deceitful. There's a way that seems right to you, but its end is death. Therefore, deny yourself, your fleshly desires, your lust, your desire to push boundaries. Pursue Christ. Pursue your joy in Christ. Pursue the word of God and his law and his commandments. And then third, seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Everything we discuss tonight will fall essentially into these three categories, because they are crucial in the context of dating. So I want to start um, with the, ob- the obvious. And some of you, this may not be obvious to some of you, and it should be obvious to you. Christians must only date and marry in the Lord. Only. I, I thought to myself over and over, how can somebody justify dating a non-Christian? 
Now, look, you hear stories of, well, they got saved because of me. Okay, praise God that God worked in spite of your disobedience. Okay, but that, that is what it is, okay? And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I wonder if, if, and maybe there's somebody in this room and you can help me a little later. I don't mean no judgmental, I, I, no judgment here. I'm, I'm curious as to what is the logic, the biblical argument of why it's appropriate for a believer to be pursuing a life with a non-believer and how they think that that could potentially work. Christians, we must know that dating and marrying is only in the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Israelites were commanded not to intermarry or to not intermarry with non-Jews. Now, many of you will immediately dismiss this passage because it's the old covenant law and it was for the Jews. But I want you to notice something about this passage in Deuteronomy 7 and why they were commanded to not intermarry with these foreigners. The reason was because the foreigners would turn the sons of Israel away from following God, and they would then serve other gods. Paul actually argues the same thing in the New Testament, or the New Covenant, for all of us. He says, warns us, that in, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18, that we should not be bound together with unbelievers. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, he tells the widows that they're free to remarry whom they will, but only in the Lord. What is astonishing is how Christians justify dating or pursuing a non-believer, especially in the context of when they say, well, it's a means of evangelism. I intend to win them for Christ in a relationship. I, I, have, I have awesome news for you. You can win somebody for Christ without getting in a relationship with them. It's just as effective. <laughs> it's actually probably less dirty. It probably has less baggage and, and difficulties that come into the mix. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 7, 16, for everyone who, who thinks, well, I'll win them to Christ. For everyone who thinks, I'll win them to Christ. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 16, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Typically, in these relationships, it, it is the believer who is more influenced and found to compromise. And the sad reality is, is that more often than not, if a believer is willing to choose a relationship with somebody else of the opposite sex over their relationship with the Lord, more compromises are sure to follow. As soon as you move that boundary a little bit, the second time becomes easier. The third time becomes even more easier. One of the most helpful things I read in regard to this specific topic of dating non-believers was the challenge that, that Jim Neuheiser um, gave. And he takes this dating non-believers to the next level and says, you shouldn't even just date a professing believer. He says, somebody that claims to be a Christian does not pass the immediate test. He discusses that we must look beyond someone's profession and we must seek evidence in their life of a vital, fruitful, growing relationship with the Lord. In other words, ask yourself, are they in the Word? When they speak, are they speaking in step with the Spirit? Are they overcoming sin in their life? What words come out of their mouths? Are they quick to anger and sin? Are they active in their church and serving and fellowshipping in the body? Are they humble? Do they have a good reputation? Now, I'm not saying they have to be perfect, but you should see growth. You should see fruit. You should see steps. We can't allow our emotions and our attraction to somebody to cause us to make unwise decisions and compromise what is required in pursuing a godly spouse. Again, you must die to yourself. 
and your emotions and your desires. And you must pursue Christ and his joy and his word and follow his commands. And you must seek wisdom from the word of God, the spirit, from godly men or women, and from your parents. So that's the obvious. Now the question then becomes, is dating biblical? That's, like, is it? And if it is, are we talking like today's definition of, biblical, or of dating? Or are we talking like the 50s definition of dating? Or are we talking like the 1900s definition of dating? Or are we talking like Martin Luther's day definition of dating? Are we talking like Constantinople definition of dating? Because surely you do realize that dating has changed incredibly in each generation. Uh, what we would call dating today would be called out outright sin and wickedness and would get you excommunicated from a church and potentially even killed during the Reformation. So there, we do need to put things in perspective here. Like, but, but is dating biblical? And if it is, what kind of dating? What does it look like? Or, or you might be wondering, well, so what does it look like to pursue someone? I'm single. I want to pursue someone. I want to pursue whomever that God may have. But what does it look like? What do I look for? What are the boundaries maybe in my relationship? Are there different boundaries because I'm engaged? Who should be involved in my relationship? How do I know if I should marry someone? How do I know if I shouldn't marry someone? How do I know when I should get married or when I shouldn't? What if I've made mistakes already? What if the relationship I'm in has made mistakes? What if I can't find anyone? The list of questions goes on and on and on. So to these questions, we turn our attention now. As I mentioned before, the Bible doesn't give us a roadmap, but in many ways, it does give us a, a guide um, and incredibly helpful tools. The Old Testament is chock full of wisdom literature, and so there's different genres that you find in the Bible. You have gospels, you have epistles, you have prophets, uh, the larger prophets, the, the minor prophets. You've got... Um, writings, and we're going to talk about that in a second, you have historical books and a lot of prose, things written in prose, but then you have a lot of poetry and a lot of wisdom literature, Hebrew wisdom literature. And it's in this literature, the, the writings, I think of Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, these would be wisdom literature. In this, you find incredible advice and wisdom. Did you know that um, Proverbs, in Israel's day, in the Old Testament day, Proverbs was a textbook of sorts for young people. It was something they would memorize, that they would sit under their father or under their clan, or if they were pursuing something in the royal court, or if they were going to school, it was a textbook of how they could seek no wisdom and apply it to their life. A young person today would do well to spend hours a week in these books of wisdom and pray over them and through them. The book of Proverbs was a collection of comparisons based on observation and reflection that sought to instruct people in right behavior. The heart of the Old Testament wisdom literature was desiring to and choosing to learn and apply the fear of the Lord to daily life. How do I apply the fear of the Lord to my daily life? And the Proverbs shows us that you do this by forsaking the way of darkness, evil, and death, and walking in the path of integrity, righteousness, justice, and life. In other words, it's amazing, think about it, it was a way for young people, they sat under this teaching, to discern 
what is the will of the Lord in every aspect of their life and therefore determine how they should live. I was reading this and I thought to myself, that's kind of like what we're doing in Refuge this year. I'm definitely not escalating us to the book of Proverbs. There's nothing canonical about, uh, okay, you get what I'm saying. But it's amazing that our objective this semester, specifically in the heart of young people, is to cultivate a biblical worldview based on the word of God and then teach you to apply it to your life. And that's what Proverbs was to the nation of Israel. You see in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2 through 7, the actual purpose of the book. You see the purpose found in these uh, six verses, and it's to know wisdom and instruction, okay? To receive teaching in wise dealing, in righteousness, in equity, and justice. It's to help the simple gain prudence and the youth to gain knowledge and discretion. It's to increase learning and acquire skill and understanding. It's to understand proverbs, parables, and wise sayings, and it's to learn and apply the fear of the Lord. Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord shapes the behavior and thinking of the person. But what's amazing is that what you find in the book of Proverbs, the two biggest themes are human speech and human sexuality. In the book of Proverbs, you find warnings against the folly of sexual freedom. I'll say this again. This is, this is crucial in the context of dating. Proverbs teaches the folly of sexual freedom. It says it's foolish to think that you are sexually free. I want you to listen to what Andrew Hill and John Walton say about human sexuality that's found in the Proverbs. And this will be on your handout tonight that you get to take home with you. They say that in the book of Proverbs, you'll find the value of wisdom instruction as an antidote for sexual sin. I'm going to say this again because these are so good. In the book of Proverbs, you will find the value of wisdom instruction as an antidote for sexual sin. You will also find the sanctity of marriage and the appropriateness of erotic heterosexual love within marital bonds. You will also find in Proverbs the need to guard and discipline your eyes, say your eyes, and your mouth, say your mouth, to guard and discipline your eyes and mouth because these are the primary gates for the temptations that lead to sexual immorality. Proverbs um, says that we need to be aware of the destructiveness of jealousy that stems from adultery. It says that we need to be aware of the sexual dangers spawned by idleness. This was amazing. Proverbs teaches the folly of idleness and how being lazy or idle can thrust you into sexual immorality. It also says that the family unit is of the most, of most crucial importance in teaching and enforcing sexual morals. Therefore, in your dating relationships, your family should be engaged as hands-on as the two of you are. It also says that you ought to be aware of the subtlety of sexual sins. The quietness, how they creep in. Remember when we talked about pornography, we talked about the little small weed that was growing in the corner of the living room. You just kind of put a rug over it. Next thing you know, it's consumed the whole room. Remember what we were talking about? It also talked about in Proverbs the easy manner in which sexual sins are rationalized. And when we rationalize sexual sin, Proverbs says that it hardens our heart to godly moral principles. It also teaches the need to evaluate and choose a marriage partner based on internal standards related to character and not external standards related to physical attraction and sex appeal. 
And finally, it talks about the necessity for mates to avoid quarreling and maintain open channels of communication. And I have verses and chapters with all of these that on your handout, you'll see where it says all of these things. So, though the Bible doesn't have an epistle or a chapter written in Paul's writings of this is what it means of how you should pursue dating, this is what you look for, Proverbs is literally that. And it was written for young people. And the two main themes, what comes out of your mouth and your sexual immorality. Two biggest points in preparing young people to succeed and be godly as they grow older. So I'd encourage you to study the Proverbs. There are two important factors as you pursue a spouse. And just so you know, any dating that is not with the end goal of finding a spouse is absolutely sinful and unbiblical and a massive waste of your time and your energy and it will ruin much of your heart and your emotions. But there are two important factors in your pursuit of a spouse. You need biblical wisdom, as we've talked about, and you need to keep the sanctity of marriage and a biblical understanding of marriage in the forefront of your mind. What I mean about, by this is, is, remember last week we talked about what a biblical worldview of marriage is. We talked about how um, understanding what the Bible says about marriage allows for you to succeed in the context of your marriage. Well, I think that understanding marriage correctly and biblically allows for you to understand kind of guidelines of how you would pursue that. If this is, right, having, having an end goal in mind allows for you to chart out and figure out how you are going to achieve that goal and that vision. Hence, understanding biblically what marriage is and seeking counsel along the way allows for you to lay out a plan of how you can honor God and pursue a biblical relationship. So I want to break down our main points last week and apply it, what I'm just saying, to what it means to chart a course for pursuing a biblical relationship. If you remember, we talked about marriage, number one, that God joins together a man and a woman in marriage, and the marriage is a covenant, not a contract. What this means is that in pursuing a relationship leading to marriage, the relationship or courtship or dating should be exclusive, and it should seek to reflect the standards of the biblical covenant of marriage. Obviously, it's not marriage. So there's not, you don't get to enjoy the benefits of what comes in the context of marriage. But you are required to practice and be faithful to the standards of marriage in your dating relationship. This means that casual dating or open relationships, as I mentioned, are a waste of time and completely unbiblical. Uh, you know, window shopping, aunt, Forrest Gump's, you know, pick your donut, aunt. That's not what biblical relationships or dating looks like. High schools today and middle schools today even, and even creeping into the older elementary schools, is this obsession of having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and it means nothing. And we're teaching people at a young age that it's fitting in or the right thing to do, or you find identity in having somebody else who likes you or you can go out with, or you can high-five before you get on the bus, and it just increases as you get older, and it's really disruptive, and it's damning to a lot of people. The second thing I think about, about marriage and how it relates to dating is that, remember we talked about marriage displays the glory of God in a unique way. Remember we brought Tyler up here, and we had Abby who was back there, 
And we talked about if Abby, who just found out five facts about Tyler, was to write Tyler's eulogy, it would be unsatisfying. It would not honor Tyler as much as Tyler should be honored. And we talked about how marriage displays specific aspects of God's glory in an incredible way. We also talked because marriage is so important and crucial to God's design of reflecting his glory, why Satan hates marriages so much and why he actively seeks to destroy marriages. But he seeks to do the same thing in dating. He wants to corrupt dating and relationships leading towards something in the future. He wants to blind biblical pursuit of marriage so that people aren't reflecting the glory of God. And dating in itself has a very unique opportunity to display parts of the glory of God in a different manner than marriage. Because the intimacy of marriage is forbidden outside of marriage, the dating couples can display the glory of God in their obedience of joyful waiting. What a great display of God's glory. They can display that God is greater than sex. They can display that God is greater than Hollywood and Disney's portrayal of love. Marshall Segal says that the great prize in marriage is Christ-centered intimacy. And the great prize in dating is Christ-centered clarity. He says the right kind of clarity is the means to the right kind of intimacy. And when you don't have clarity, you distort biblical intimacy. Therefore, in dating, he says, we should pursue clarity and not intimacy. Biblical dating is a way to display to the world that obedience to Christ is far more satisfying than any of the world's best lusts and lures and fixes. And one of the world's best lures and lusts and fixes is sexual immorality and ungodly relationships. Thirdly, this was one of the most um, unbelievable Portions. In fact, when you texted me that Chandler quote, it was, it was so incredible to me because I read something similar in the other book that you recommended to me about a month ago. Um, and so I'll get to share. For everybody's like, what the heck are you talking about? Sorry for the side conversation. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, it says, Therefore a man shall leave, say leave, this is important. Say it again. Okay, remember that word. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, or cleave, say cleave, say it again, to his wife. Okay, so in marriage you have what happens first, you leave, yep, then you, you just add a C, Gavin, it's really simple, yeah, okay, V-N, Gavin Gannon. All right, so in biblical marriage, you what, your parents, your family, leave, and you Cleave to your wife. And it goes on. And it says, and they shall become one flesh. Say one flesh. This is an incredible example of marriage. So what you have is, when you get married, you what your family? You what to your wife? And you become one flesh. Now here's what's amazing. When you look at dating today, or premature dating, or cultural relationships what we find is that a man and a woman can often find themselves in a dating relationship without any plan to pursue marriage, yet they will find themselves in a mini-marriage. Why? Because what they do is they begin to withdraw from their family and their parents, and the relationship ends up being them alone often. In other words, they're what? Starts with an L, ends with eving. Leaving. Thank- Excellent. They're, they're leaving. 
and when they're spending time away from their friends, away from their family, what are they doing to their relationship partner? They're cleaving. And then when they push boundaries, because now they're in a situation where they're away from the biblical oversight of their family and their friends, and now they're cleaving to one another without that oversight and that shepherding and guarding, they're now pushing boundaries and they're becoming what? One flesh. So what you have happening in high schools and middle schools and colleges today is many marriages that aren't marriages. People are leaving and they're cleaving and they're becoming one flesh. And Genesis 2.24 says, this is for marriage. This is incredible to a biblical worldview of dating. Because this means that this is not what a dating relationship should look like. That's what a marriage should look like. So what does the opposite tell you? A couple should be involved with their family and their friends and under the oversight and protection of their parents and godly men and women. It means that they should not be clinging and holding fast to one another yet at this point. While they're growing together, they should be clinging to Christ and clinging to godly counsel and clinging to friends and building godly relationships and killing sin in their own life and preparing to become the husband or the wife that God lays out as an expectation in Scripture. And then this protects them from becoming one flesh. And what happens is in verse 25, you see something amazing. Because in the context of leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh and God's design of marriage, what happens? The man and his wife are naked. And they're not what? They're not ashamed. Which means this. When you leave and you cleave, and you become one flesh, and you become naked or sexual immoral outside of marriage, what does it bring? Shame. And my guess is that the bulk of people here tonight would go, yeah, I felt that. And you know exactly what you're talking about. And you never really realized that what you were doing was forming a mini-marriage. And there's too much emphasis and play going on. Oh, it's like they're married already. Oh, it's like they're together. They fight like they're married. Breaks. Don't even allow people to have that mentality in their mind. Because guess what? They're not married yet. They're not. And it's dangerous to even allow them to think or hear that word and put it in the context of who they are. Because we will have the tendency as human beings to leave and to cleave and become one flesh. And what happens is you're naked and you're ashamed. Now what's amazing is he goes even further. And he says, as they leave, as they cleave, as they become one flesh, they all of a sudden have become many marriages. But what happens for high schoolers and for college students and young adults is that these many marriages usually end in many divorces. And it causes both hurt and regret, especially for Christian young people. I read that, and then Ellen texted me a quote from Matt Chandler, where Matt Chandler says that high school dating is like practicing divorce. Think, think about this and chew on it. High school dating is like practicing divorce. There's no covenant mindset. You're pursuing your own desires. You can go too far. You can end things and leave a trail of regret and garbage. We're teaching our kids that relationships are recyclable and that they don't have to last. That's what's taking place. In the Christian context, however, families and ministries are affected in the church when these types of breakups or clashes happen, reputations can be marred, and frankly, we become no different from the 
world. This is what the world does. Number four, we talked about roles of marriage last week. The the husband and the wife. The Bible's clear on the role of the husband. He's clear on the role of the wife. So in Christian dating, what you are seeking is to become a godly man prepared to be a godly husband or woman prepared to be a godly wife. And you are seeking somebody who is becoming somebody that will be a godly husband, somebody that will become a godly wife. Remember, God's displaying his glory in marriage and he's given specific roles to display this glory in marriage. So when you're seeking a relationship, you're seeking somebody who is seeking to be godly in these roles. Number five. And finally, we are to be distinct from the world. And I mentioned this before. Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then it talks about when you do this, you're able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and pleasing. That's amazing, right? Think about a dating and marriage verse. Don't don't think like the world. Be transformed. Change the way you think. Then... Once your mind is renewed, once you no longer think like the world, once you are no longer conformed to the way the world thinks, at that point, you get the answers you're seeking, and you will be able to discern what is the good and acceptable and pleasing will of God. Isn't that amazing? That one of the things that keeps you from being able to know how God is leading you is that you are thinking like the world. And the Bible says, stop thinking like the world. Be transformed. Have your mind renewed. And now you can be able to discern what is good and acceptable and pleasing. We have to change our relationships, our goals, our standards, our desires, our self-control, our love, our service. It all has to be different. Christian dating should not look like or seek after Hollywood dating. Christian dating should not look like or seek after Disney dating. We should not look like or seek after relationships of the day. God has given us his law. He has given us his wisdom. He has given us his son. He has given us his spirit. And he has given us his bride, the church, to guide us and lead us and teach us. And we ought to cling to that, not to each other. Do not look to the things of this world. Die to self. Pursue Christ. Seek wisdom. This next phase is um, awkward because I'm, I, I don't have a grown child. I have perceptions of how I want to raise Charlotte, what will be acceptable for her and what will not. And I will be the first to tell you that I, I will fail a thousand times as a father. And I will be calling probably many of you and seeking wisdom and Sometimes, as is the nature, you know, I can imagine myself calling Mike, and Mike, eh, you know, she's in 10th grade, and this guy named Zach comes over, and he's, you know, what do I do? And next thing you know, it's like, hey, don't do this! I'm like, okay, don't do this, don't do this, and I got it, I got it, don't do this. And then Charlotte looks at me with those beautiful eyes, and she's my firstborn, and she's so sneaky cute, and I go, Charlotte, yes, you can definitely do that. And then all of a sudden, it'll be this big, Mike goes, I told you so, Dave, why don't you listen to me, right? So I get it, I get it, I'm not, I'm not putting myself on any, you know, (laughs) crazy thinking that I'm going to perfect this thing. But I do have desires and thoughts, and I have sought counsel and prayed and studied and and prayed thoroughly that God would give me wisdom. And so while I can't necessarily speak from a parent's standpoint, I can speak from a son's standpoint. I can speak from the standpoint of a youth pastor. I can speak from the standpoint of a person who's been in ministry and in my own life made a lot of mistakes, in dating. And what I can tell you is that we trust our kids too much. 
We do. Comma, we trust ourselves way too much. Way, way, way too much. I remind you of the verses that we began with tonight. Your heart's deceitful. Charm and beauty are seductive. There's a way that seems right to man, but it ends in the way of death. Look at Paul. You know, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. He, he probably could have also said, I'm the chief of saints. Honestly. He probably could have. And what you find in Paul is this unbelievable, accurate view of himself. He was the chief of sinners. And in Romans 7, you have this beautiful explanation of why Paul does not trust himself. And there is a war waging inside of him. You've heard it, but I want you to be shocked again. I want you to think about this in the context of dating relationships today. Paul says this, beginning in verse 15 of Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions. Anybody ever thought like me like every day? I do not understand my actions. I do not do what I want. I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You think of Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Boy, isn't that the truth of, of believers? How many times I found myself, yeah, actually, even literally, at this altar and said, God, I love you. I love your word. Why am I doing this? Forgive me. Cleanse me. What is happening inside of me? This is not who I am. Please change me. And Paul, I'm in good company. He goes, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And it's making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, he says. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, listen to that testimony of Paul. And tell me that your child should have the freedom to talk without supervision and social media and hang out freely and at night and in lonely places with people of the opposite sex. <laughs> if, if Paul has this war waging inside, why would we think that that war would not be waging inside of us, our children, our friends? Should we allow high schoolers to date? I'm not a parent of anybody outside of Charlotte, and she's certainly not in high school. Uh, uh, that, that's between you and the Lord, right? I'm, there's no black and white here. I'm, that's between you and the Lord. But should we allow our high schools to, high schools to date? 
I'm not talking about building a friendship, okay? I'm, I'm not talking about pursuing a godly relationship with somebody that you're interested in, under supervision. I don't call that dating, right? I, so I, I'm, I'm talking culture dating. I'm talking going to a dinner, a movie, hanging out downstairs away from mom and dad in the dark. I, it's not okay for our high schoolers and our young adults to have this kind of freedom. Let me ask you a different question. Do you actually have that freedom biblically? May I suggest tonight that the freedom that we have in these realms is similar to the freedom that we have in a workplace or classroom? Uh, Let me explain. You might say, well, I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I like this boy. I like this girl. She likes me. Mom, wake up. It's 2017. Get out my face. All right? I'm Snapchatting, I'm Instagramming, he's fine. That, like, you have this mentality, I have the freedom, you can't tell me who I can and can't like. Gosh, I hope you're God, I never hear that from my child. I'm sure I will. You can't hear Mike. Mike's going, do I have to tell you I told you so right now? Is that what's about to happen? Yeah. But let me suggest that the freedom that you have to do these types of things is similar to the freedom you might have in a classroom or a workplace. I remember in third grade, I was an ordinary little child. I know that's hard to believe. I got in a lot of trouble in elementary school. And I got in trouble for something I didn't do. I don't think I did. I probably did do it, honestly. And Mrs. Vaughn told me to go write, many of you know the story, go write another check next to my name. Now, here's what happened. If you had to put your name on the... Anybody ever remember chalkboards and putting your name on the board? Okay. Sweet. I am now with all of the people over 40. Everybody else is like, eh, it's called whiteboard or PowerPoint. So anyways, I, I, had to go, I had to go up, write my name, trouble. Now, here's what happened. You got 30 minutes of recess. So if I did something bad again, I had to go put a check next to my name. One check meant that I have to sit in the classroom for the first 15 minutes of recess. Are you kidding me? I was part of a club called the Bee Haters Club. True story. Get at me. In elementary school, you know what we did? We went out on the playground. This is totally side, so I'm wasting time. We, we went out and we would see how many bees we could kill, and we would come back and compare. We killed a lot of bees, got a lot of bee stings. Anyways, second check means you miss all of recess. Well, I already had my name on the board, and I had a check from this one class. They're like 30-minute classes. And she says, David James Aubrey, get up there, put another check next to your name. I forgot what I did. So I was ticked off. And I went up, and I'm... In my freedom, forget you, forget all of you. I'm my own grown man, third grader Dave Aubrey. Check, 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 chalk, 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 run out the door. I go hide in a closet for the remainder of the day. They were searching for me. They had to call my parents to come and find me. You can ask my mom if I'm lying. They finally found me. I had to go to the principal. Now, listen, in a very real way, I had the freedom to do all that. I actually didn't have the freedom. I could do it, but I didn't have the freedom. Want to know why? There are consequences to my actions. There are consequences to my decisions. In the same way that if you think you have freedom at work to do whatever you want, if you don't do a poor job, you might be getting suspended without pay, or you might lose your job. You may think you have freedom, but your freedom has authority. This is crucial. Your freedom has authority. And if your child, that authority is your parents, or it's your church, leaders in your church, brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's ultimately God. And so you might think that you've got free will as much as you want to have free will, but the moment that your free will comes in contradiction with 
Almighty God, sovereign will, guess who loses that battle every single time? You do. John Piper has a beautiful explanation of freedom. Some of you have heard this, especially if you were in my youth a while ago, so some of you might remember this. It's worth noting. John Piper says that freedom is this. It's when you have desire, say desire, ability, and opportunity, and it makes you, as a result, as happy as you could possibly be in a thousand years. Think about it. He's saying freedom is when your desire, your ability, and your opportunity come together and work in such a way that makes you as happy as you could possibly be in a thousand years. What does that mean? In glory. He says freedom is not when you have ability, desire, opportunity, and it destroys you. That's not freedom. He says that's slavery. And he gives a beautiful example. He says, let's, I'll use, so this is his illustration. Let's say tomorrow morning, I say, you know what, Abigail? It's going to snow today. Lord willing, it's going to snow. I hope it snows. I hope we get a snow day and you and me can hang out and spend an awesome time together and play with Charlotte all day and take videos and send them to Mike and Ellen and annoy them. That's my goal. Lord, you heard the cry of my heart. Your will be done. So <laughs> let's say tomorrow it's going, to be, it's going to be snow. And I say, Abigail, it would be awesome to skydive in the snow. I've got the desire, I want to go do it. So in my freedom, in my grown man self, I decide tomorrow morning, I'm getting up early and I'm driving. I'm free to do this. I drive, I get in the car, I slip in the car and I get in a car accident. Now here's what happens. I have the desire and I have the ability to jump out of a plane, but the opportunity has been stripped from me. Therefore, I'm no longer free, you see? All right, let's continue the illustration. Now let's say I leave in the morning. And I don't get in a car accident. I drive all the way there. I get to the field or the plane or whatever the thing that happens. And I'm sitting with the instructors. I've got the desire. The opportunity is now here for me. And he goes, where's your paperwork? And I say, what paperwork? And he says, you're supposed to take class. I say, what class? I don't have the ability to jump out of this plane anymore. Okay? It's been taken from me. I'm no longer free. Let's go even further. I drive. No car accident. I get there. I've got the paperwork. I'm signed up. I'm geeky. I have a shirt that says, my first time jumping on a plane. Woo! Right? And so I get up in the plane plane takes off. Now I'm a thousand feet in the air, however high you are when you jump. Anybody jumped in a plane before? You're all sane. We can all be friends. The plane is up there. However, how far, Mike? Okay. However high. That's too, that's too high for me. But however high skydiving is, and all of a sudden, I've got the opportunity. I've got the ability. The door slides open, and I look down, and I say, oh, Heck no, I'm not doing this. Now, my desire has been taken away. I'm no longer free. Now watch this. If I take Matt Copley with me, I know that Matt Copley's sitting on the ground, and if I don't jump out of the plane, guess who's going to make fun of me for the rest of my life? Matt Copley. And i got to show Matt Copley that I am a grown man. And so what will happen is I might be manipulated or coerced to jump out of the plane, but that's not freedom, just because I've done it. But now, let's take it even further. Let's say I get there, no car accident. I got my paperwork, my t-shirt. I go up way higher than 1,000 feet. The door opens, and I say, I got this. And I go guns blazing. Ah! And all of a sudden, it's ecstasy. And there's you know, wind blowing my gray hairs around. And I can't believe it. 
and I'm screaming, and I see geese, and I'm playing with the snow, and it's moment after moment of unbelievable joy and incredible freedom and satisfaction and pure ecstasy, and all of a sudden, I'm getting closer to the ground, and I go, all right, the moment's over, pull the parachute, and I go to grab it, and I'm not wearing a parachute. And what happens? I'm dead. What happens is I have plummeted to my death for the freedom of pure ecstasy for moments. And that's not freedom. That's slavery. So Piper says, all the freedom that you think you have, remember that freedom is when you have desire and ability and opportunity all presenting itself to make you the happiest you can be 1,000 years from now. Your best life comes later. The Bible talks about this, lest you think this is just some neat illustration that, frankly, any public speaker could whip up. Let's look at what the Bible says. Galatians 5.13. We are indeed called to freedom, but Paul says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. John 8. If you abide in his word, verse 31, you are truly his disciple. You will know the truth, verse 32, and the truth will set you free. The truth sets you free. Galatians 5.1 says that Christ has set us free, but we're set free in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Now, if you have a Bible, everybody go to 1 Peter chapter 2, because you've got to see this text for yourself. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to go to verse 16. This, these verses are worth coming tonight, if for nothing else. I want you to think about the example we just talked about. I want you to think about this in the context of dating. If you get the freedom to do what you want to do, see who you want to see, be where you want to be, choose who you want to choose, live how you want to live. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, says, Live as people who are free. How do you do this? Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now go to verse 18 and watch this. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice how? By sensual passions of the flesh. They're doing this to those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Verse 19, watch this. Verse 19, they promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now look at me. This is a cultural view of everything. Specifically dating. It promises you freedom. It promises you autonomy. It promises you your best life now. And what it is, is it's slavery because it's not in Christ. And what happens is you are plummeting to your death. That's what Proverbs says, remember? There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for evil. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, Herb. You've been bought with a price. You don't get to do what you want to do with your life or your body. You're not free outside of Christ. There are consequences of that kind of freedom. Paul says you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. In Christian dating today, we're asking the wrong questions. We're asking questions. Let me pause. This is a box of everything I'm about to say, and Dave Aubrey has lived inside of this box. There's a big old mirror with everything that I'm about to say spitting truth right back in my face, okay? Just 
leveling that playing field. We're asking the wrong questions in Christian dating. We ask the question, how far is too far? How much touching can I do? How late can we hang out? What if they're not a serious Christian yet? What if they don't really represent the qualities of a godly man or woman, but I really like them? What if they're really nice to me? These types of questions reflect a cultural mindset in dating. It reflects someone who doesn't want to feel shame or guilt, but wants to date like the world. It says this, I don't want the punishment of sin. I don't want the judgment. I don't want Christ to like be mad at me, or I want to still kind of appear like I'm being ruled like him, by him, but I want to be the king. I want to be the queen. I want, to, I want to do and pursue what I want to do and pursue. Rather, the questions that we should be asking should be this. How do I reflect God's glory in my waiting and pursuit of Christian marriage? How do I become a man or a woman fit to fill the biblical role of a husband or wife? How do I seek to kill sin in my life now so that I can better be prepared for the marriage covenant and serving my spouse? How can I be proactive in keeping the leaving, cleaving in one flesh for marriage How can I be an example to others about what biblical dating looks like? How can I shock the world with my joy and singleness? How can I be distinct from the world and pursue the wisdom found in God's word? How can I seek godly counsel from my parents and leaders in the church? And I say that last part because many people think it's not cool to involve your parents in your dating life. Cramps your style. But it is not cool to keep them out of it. It is dangerous and it can be devastating. The Proverbs and Scripture warn us about honoring, obeying, and respecting our parents. And the Bible gives our parents commands about how to raise us, discipline us, teach us, guard us, etc. So you should work very hard to have your parents involved in your dating life. For those who do not have godly parents, Romans 12 says you do the best you can as much as it depends on you. And then what you should do is you should fill that void with godly men and women and couples found in your local church. You need godly people in your life to encourage you and prepare you and to teach you and to hold you accountable. You need to have discussions with godly men and women about finances and children and sin and the struggles of marriage and what is the most difficult in the first couple years of marriage and forgiveness and goals in life and everything else before you are married. Before you are married. And you need godly mentors in those conversations with you. Don't do this with some test online or between yourselves at a coffee shop. Bring some people who have been there, done that, made some mistakes and say, let me just share how God can be honored in your life. The person that you are pursuing must be a believer in Christ, a growing believer in Christ, and also must have a similar calling to you. Abigail, as beautiful as she is and as wonderful, and you may not know this, she's incredibly funny, and uh, as great of a cook as you are, and as much as I like to look at you and hear you speak, and as much as she loves the Lord, and the times that we get to talk about him, she even encourages and challenges me. All those things, I knew she'd be a great mother. All, All these types of things would have meant nothing, and we'd have never gotten married if she said, I'm called to be a touring country artist (laughs) because I'm called to the local church and so what you should do is talk about dreams and visions and calling and where you believe God is leading you and make sure that your futures make sense together because if they don't that's a clear clear indicator that look this might be a godly friendship but it will not be a godly marriage and you should move on 
There are several areas we have not addressed tonight, just like every week. This is because each topic, frankly, could take a whole semester in itself. So we've hit highlights. I do want to say, if you have further questions or thoughts, stay for small groups or reach out to me. But before we finish um, with one final thought that I want to give, I just want to recap and make sure that everything we've said makes sense. I want to give you one final application, okay? The biblical worldview of dating, get in the Proverbs. Get in the Proverbs. It's a great textbook of seeking wisdom and counsel, especially in the context of sexual morality, dating, and marriage. So get in the Proverbs. A second biblical worldview. Understand that there is no such thing as missionary dating. That is as unbiblical as it gets. There is such thing as missionaries, just not missionary dating. Next, build relationships that last. Not many divorces. I'm talking endure and persevere and forgive and strengthen and sanctify one another. Next, display the glory of God in your dating and in your waiting. Next, seek to become the role of a godly husband or wife and seek this in a partner. Next, don't leave or cleave or become one flesh in your dating. Next, don't look to Disney or Hollywood and try to out-romanticize everyone else with your relationship. Next, understand that freedom is only found in Christ, that you are not your own, therefore glorify God in your dating. Next, keep your family engaged and keep your church engaged in your dating. Have them be hands-on. Next, don't trust yourself and don't let anyone else trust you. (laughs) Set up guardrails. I remember a the first week on pornography that we talked about, we talked about radical amputation, radical transformation, radical accountability. And that's what you need in dating too. Ask the right questions. Trust God and his word, not yourself. And finally, the end goal of dating, are you ready? Is not to find your identity in the love of your life as far as a man or a woman, but to find your identity in the love of God and display his glory through a God-honoring, Christ-exalting marriage. Your dating is not about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your life is not about you. You do not have the freedom that you think you do. If you do think you have that freedom, it's slavery, and Satan is lying to you. I want to finish tonight. You can't have a topic like this without addressing a massive part of this. Those who have made big mistakes in previous relationships, or maybe are making them in their current relationship. If you remember Genesis 2.25, you'll remember that the consequence of being naked or, frankly, any kind of sexual sin outside of the context of marriage brings what? Shame. This is a consequence of sin. I personally, like I'm assuming the majority of you in this room, have had to live with and confess and repent and have uncomfortable conversations because of shame and sin in my own life. It's brought difficult moments. It's brought incredible godly grief. But the great news is that the gospel has the final word here. Amen. The first place to start if you have messed up or are messing up is Psalm 51. David caught in sin, finally repents and turns to God in an incredible confession 
He confesses his sin. He calls it what it is. He acknowledges that he sinned against God. He weeps. He mourns. Proverbs mentions that you, before you can gain understanding or wisdom, you must fear the Lord. James tells us to be wretched and mourn and weep. We already talked about this with pornography too. If you're caught in this sin, break the walls down of your heart and cry out to God in anguish over your sin. Show the Lord that you understand the depths and the disgusting evil of what sin really is and how it cost him his son's life on the cross. But Paul tells us that godly grief, this kind of grief, this kind of anguish is what produces repentance. Worldly grief, getting caught, reputation marred, I lost the things that I wanted, that's worldly grief. It's the same issue that got you into the sin in the first place. It's the same thing. So our first step, if you've made a mistake or you're making mistakes, pour your heart out before the Lord and the other person. Ask for forgiveness. Weep over your sin. Hate it. Rebuke it. The second step, because remember my Psalm 51 messages months ago, you can't stay there. You have to go to this place of anguish. And you cannot stay there. You preach the gospel to yourself. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11. You live with reality. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this. This is the gospel. Such were you, Herb. Such were you, Chase. Such were you, Brooke. Such were you, Mike. Such were you, AJ. Such were you, Dave. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has taken the punishment that you deserved. And for the joy that was set before him, watch this. Hebrews 12 says, I love this. We talked about Genesis 2.25. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and what? Despised the shame. I love it. And is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's purchased your redemption. You've been made new. The old is gone. The new has come. You live in the Romans 7 already, not yet. But God is sanctifying you and conforming to the image of his son, which leads to the third step, walk in obedience, looking to Christ. The same grace that saves you will be the same grace that sanctifies you. And Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who has purchased our sanctification on the cross. Our sanctification is just as sure a promise as our justification is. And we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. He intercedes for us and he runs to our aid in time of need and temptation. Praise God for that. So abide in him, bear fruit, and kill your sin. And then finally, the fourth step. Confess your sin. Anguish over it. Preach the gospel to yourself. Pursue Christ. Walk in the news of life and obedience. Claim that victory. If there was ever a name it and claim it gospel, it was, a, it was about sanctification. If there's a name it, claim it gospel, it's my sanctification. I'll name that and I'll claim that all day, every day. Praise God. The fourth and final step is to set up guardrails. Build relationships that will protect you from stumbling. Listen to me. Love the church. The church is God's gracious gift to you to keep you from falling into this kind of sin and to aid you and lead you in making wise decisions for God's glory. See what a grace 
the church is from God. Seek fellowship. Seek worship corporately. Seek accountability. Seek discipleship. Don't run this race alone. And don't think that your sin is too great that you can't seek counsel and accountability and discipleship. The church is full of a bunch of wicked sinners just like you who have been washed by the blood of Christ. So I leave you by praying Colossians 1, chapter 9 through 14. I invite you to stay for small groups and then we'll talk about remarriage and divorce next week. Let's bow our heads and I'm going to pray Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14 over you. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, amen, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll have take-home outlines and questions for you, and we will have small groups. If you'd like to stay, you can come up to the front. I'll leave these on a